Want to learn how to see and share Jesus from all the scripture? Learn with us at the Christ Centered and Clear podcast. Welcome to the Christ Center and Clear podcast. I'm your host, Nate Aiken. With me today are my brother, John Aiken and Josh Redberg. We're in a short Advent series focusing on the women in Matthew's genealogy. Each one provides a fascinating glimpse of God's grace. And today's, uh, on today's episode, we're going to consider the story of Bathsheba. Uh, the account of David and Bathsheba is found in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. John, before we sort of walk through the story of David and Bathsheba, could you cover what happens in the time, as you've been doing in the previous episodes, between Ruth uh, up to the time of Bathsheba. Yeah. So after Ruth, um, and Boaz start having children, uh, then, you know, down, down the line, uh, David comes, but, um, after the time of the judges, uh, when Samuel is like the last judge in Israel, uh, the people start demanding to have a King and they want a King like the Kings of the nations. They, they get what they asked for. They didn't necessarily want what they asked for after they got it, but they, gets Saul, who looks the part, um, and he starts out well, uh, but then he uh, doesn't trust and disobeys the Lord, and so the kingship is taken away from him um, and and given to David. Now, there's plenty of like overlap time before, when David has been anointed as king until he becomes king, and there's Saul tries to kill him. All kind of stuff is happening, and then eventually when Saul dies, David becomes king, and um kind of consolidates uh, the 12 tribes into a nation and sets up um, sets up a palace in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is kind of the capital city, wants to build a temple, but God says, no, I'm going to build a, a house for you, a dynasty, that you're going to never fail to have a man on the throne um, in um uh, in Israel. And so everything's going good. Like he's, he's winning victories. He's, he's consolidating power. There's rest, uh, in a lot of ways in Israel. Um, and then this episode happens and, and, uh, mm-hmm. everything, everything goes haywire for, for his family, for the nation, everything. Hey, Josh, can you give us just the summary of the actual events that happened with the David and Bathsheba story? Yeah, so it begins with an interesting phrase in the spring when kings march out to war. David sends his generals, doesn't go himself. Um, one day he's he's on the roof of the castle. I'm sure this is a place where cooler, um, the, the place that was was typical on the roofs of the houses to 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 be for refreshment. He he sees somewhere else this beautiful woman bathing, commands that she be brought to him. He sleeps with her. She's pregnant. She's the wife of one of his one of his soldiers, not just any soldier, too, one of his mighty men, and uh, so he hatches this plot to try to try to cover his sin. So first, he brings her husband Uriah back from back from the front lines, and he says, uh, "Like you, you got some leave, go enjoy it, um, go home, you know, enjoy your wife, uh, get drunk." But Uriah is unwilling to do that. Um, so, so seeing that he's not going to, he's not going to sleep with his, with his own wife there, he, he sends Uriah back to the battle with, with sealed instructions for the general to say, put Uriah on the front line, then withdraw from him. So make sure he gets killed in the battle. He does. So he's, he dies after a period of mourning. David then makes Bathsheba one of his wives. She delivers son at some period of time afterwards. The prophet Nathan comes to him, tells him a parable. At the end, basically says, you're the man. You've sinned against God. 
David repents, but there are severe consequences. The baby dies, um, and David's the kingdom goes downhill. Trouble never leaves his family, or as you think he says, as the, the sword you struck down your eye, the Hittite with the sword, and took his wife's your own wife. Um, their sword will never leave your house because of this. Um, but mm. she does del- she does give her to a, a second son, and that's Solomon, who continues the the line of David. We'll ask some specific questions around that story, particularly some of the more sensitive parts in just a second. But um, she's not mentioned by name in the genealogy, just called the wife of Uriah. Why do Why do you think she's not named um, in that genealogy? I think I think it, it's highlighting uh, the injustice done to Uriah. Yeah, I think it's that. I think the other thing, which is pretty fascinating, is to show how much different Jesus is from sort of other mm. quote unquote religious leaders. Like Jesus' background, his lineage is far from perfect. Um, in fact, it's just flaw after flaw after flaw. Here's one of them that you know he comes from the line of a, a woman who, um, you know, who was taken in adultery by the king. And so I, I think it's just showing the, the the grace even in these moments that this that all all of these all of these people included in his genealogy were flawed. They were sinners. So he's not. He's not king because he came from this line of just the of perfect people. Um, mm-hmm. He includes these broken people in his family. Josh, when you preach this, and John, I know you're going to be preaching it soon, but when you preach this for Advent, what was the main focus, uh, main idea, main focus of the sermon? We talked about, so we were focused on grace throughout this. And so we talked about how gr- God's grace um, cleans up our messes. Um, that even in our messiest situations, you know, God's grace. And so, I mean, it's pretty obvious to see the mess that King David made of his life, of Bathsheba's life, Uriah's life, and ultimately of his line and of the country. And yet through this, like ultimately comes the Messiah. So what better way for God to bring grace in the worst mess was um, bring deliverance to mankind, uh, even through these sinful actions. So we talked about Mm -hmm. how in spite of our sin, in spite of the mess we make and we live in, God's grace is enough to rescue and save us. John, what is your plan? Have you started studying yet? What do you think the main kind of heading will be for your sermon? Yeah, I, I, it'll be something similar to what uh, I haven't looked at it yet, but it'll be something similar to what Josh just talked about. I mean, it's just it's going to talk about, um, you know, one of the things I may trace is the decline of um, David in terms of his allowing this sin. Uh, into his life and and, w- and what it does to his family uh, afterwards, uh, because David, for him to do such a thing, th- there was a time earlier in his in his um, earlier in his life, because we're told Uriah is one of the one of the mighty men of David, and there was a time earlier in his life when some of his mighty men risked their lives to go get him a drink of water hmm. from a spring that he like really liked. You know, hmm. it's like you, you reminisce about your, your hometown. It's like, man, I wish, wish I could have another chocolate milkshake from the tasty freeze, you know? And, uh, but it's, <laughs> but it, it's behind in, enemy lines and these guys go in there and risk their life to bring water to him. And he refuses to drink it because he, he said, it'd be like, they, they put their lives on the line for it. He cares so much about these men that he, he won't even drink it because he's like, he said it would be like drinking their blood. Mm. And you, but, and Uriah is mentioned in the list of the mighty men that he like it did all these things with him and for him. And that he cared about 
And then to go from that to how many ever years later to steal his, his wife and to have him murdered um, is just, you know, it, it's incredible. And so for me, it's a warning about, um, and that's the, the issue here too, is that it's not even like it, the, the main focus here is not Bathsheba, even though she's in yeah. the, you know I mean? It, it's, it's David, a man after God's own heart, and he could fail into sin so miserably. And so you need to, you need to guard your heart because if you think you're above it, then you're mm-hmm. a fool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that'll probably be a lot of what, uh, what I focus on. Well, let's just, let's jump into that. Obviously this has become a story that people talk about a lot in our current, uh, kind of conversations about, um, you know, sexual abuse and, and all the stuff that, that's going on. Um, Josh, ha- how did you and John the same you can weigh in as well, but how did you handle just that? Some of those aspects of the text um, in your study. What did you learn? Obviously, mm-hmm. rape is you know been thrown around that David raped Bathsheba. Um, would love to just hear how you handled that when you uh, preached that that text. Yeah, I, I had issues with um, applying a term like rape to this because the Bible has those terms and it does not apply it here. Like we've talked right. about in the series quite a bit, like. In Jesus' genealogy is this sordid sexual history, right? We are we've got mm. Tamar and we've got Rahab the harlot, and we you potentially have Ruth, depending upon how you interpret that story. Um, and you have Bathsheba here, so it's not shying away from that. In the history of Israel, John mentioned this last podcast with the Book of Judges, how awful it is by the end. Like it uses these words and these terminology to describe those actions. It doesn't use it here, so that's a case of. Um, sort of taking our modern, our, our sort of our modern perspective and forcing on a text. Now, I do think you should, this is a great place to talk to men, particularly men who are in, in positions of power and influence and say, like, it is very easy for you to use that to harm women. And this is one of the mm-hmm. ways, like, mm-hmm. we're, I think we're going to talk about how so often David is a type of Jesus and here he's, he's, he's a, you know, he's not, and this is how we see he's not. And one of those ways is Jesus interactions with women is they are never, Jesus is never using women. He's always protecting them. He's Mm -hmm. dignifying them. And that's not at all what David does here. And I mean, when we talk about sexual sin from the pulpit at our church, we always talk about the cost it has on people. And usually when we talk about something like pornography with men, it's like, do you realize you're actively harming that woman? She's not just pixels on a screen. That's a real woman made in the image of God. And you are, you are harming her by looking at her like that. Like, and that's not what Jesus does. And so I think it's, it speaks powerfully to that without us having to incorporate categories, biblical categories that aren't incorporated here. So I don't, I mean, we can think of maybe what are the reasons why people do that, but I, to give them the benefit of the doubt, it's just unnecessary to say like, Hey, there's, it's this biblical category when those biblical categories exist, they're not applied here. It doesn't make this any less significant. I mean, mm-hmm. in no way are you excusing David's sin without calling it rape. Mm-hmm. Let's just, but let's use the the biblical terminology and that's not used here. So I don't think it's unnecessary. And I think it may be in some ways it actually narrows the application because the application shouldn't be men don't rape, rape women. One application could be, hey, I don't care how spiritual you are, how how godly you are, you can give into temptation and you can destroy your life and other people too. Like that's a broader application and it hits probably a lot more people sitting there. Um, I know a lot of people throughout the years of pastoral ministry, I know very few who've raped someone, Um, but lots who have 
who have committed adultery. So it's a far more significant temptation. So let's use the terminology of the text and sort of incorporating it from, um, from our culture and sort of pressing it on top of this when, when those biblical terms exist and aren't used here. Right. John, thanks you, Dad. Yeah, I think, so one, I mean, to, to just piggyback on Josh's point, not only does the Bible and does, does the Hebrew language have words for rape, they're literally going to be used in two chapters when Amnon rapes and, and violates Tamar. Um, and so, so like in this book by this author, they, they know how to describe these kinds of things and, and they don't do that here. And so that, I think that's a key. The other thing is I, the, the concern I have and I don't know the history of the interpretation that I haven't studied it in depth. I, I w- would love to know when, you know, how old the rape interpretation is, or if it's, if it's a modern, you know, thing kind of reading back on the text through our categories, the challenge is, um, yeah, I'm trying to be careful with everything I say here, but the, the, the challenge is like, I do think David's sin is greater and that he bears more responsibility than Bathsheba, but to act like to act like she had no agency whatsoever, um, just is not the case. Like when 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 Potiphar's wife propositions uh, Joseph, you know he's he's a slave. She's got more authoritative standing and whatever, um, but he he refuses, and then he he suffers the consequences of it. But he has agency. He makes choices. Um, and so I think, I think we just have to be able to say, you know, people have, people have agency and they sometimes make poor decisions and yeah, it it may have been really, really difficult for her to say no to it or whatever like that, or, you know, probably so. Um, but I think we have to, we have to be careful when we erase agency completely. Hmm. Um, and then the other thing is, I think we can say, and that's not the case here again, I think David, David bears way more blame for this. Um, he sins against Bathsheba. He sins against Uriah, the army, God, you know, the nation, the whole, the whole, the whole deal. Um, and, um, but what, what's happening today is, and this may be too thorny for us to get into what's happening today is that we're, we're seeing a, a situation where it, anytime people who are not married have sex, and if there is a power dynamic within that relationship, it's automatically now being called abuse, being called you know whatever, and 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 not just being called adultery or immorality, as if as if one person is the person who's doing something to somebody else, and they they have no again no agency and no responsibility in it, and I just I don't think that that's very helpful all the time. Um, I do think what Josh said is absolutely true. That we need to talk to people who, especially men who are in positions of of, of leadership and influence, that you, you need to, to to lead as Jesus led, laying down your life for other people, not using them to get ahead or for your own pleasure or for whatever advantages. Um, and so we need to make those things clear. And that's, I think, what a lot of what you can do in this text. But some of this other stuff I, I find to be really unhelpful conversations because they just act like we don't have choices. Yeah, I think one of the thing it does with that, Nate, is it it actually undermines. There are a lot of faithful women throughout history, followers of Jesus, who have been in put in terrible situations and have even at the cost of their life, yeah, um, have yep. have refused to to 
to sin. And so I think, I think if you act as if there's no volition here, um, then I think you undermined not, not only everything John was talking about, but even the examples of these women who didn't do this. Yeah. Um, so again, it's, I, I think it's just probably done with good motives, at least in some of the case, but it obscures things that are, are biblically clear. And probably we need to be a little more discerning too on how we're letting cultural conversations shape it. I had never heard any of these until like Me Too. That's when, yeah, right. that's when this became a very popular thing. And at least in my, in sort of my awareness to talk about that, that, uh, David raped Bathsheba. So I, I just, let's stick with what the, the text actually says. And let me say this, this last thing, cause, cause to piggyback on Josh again, I do think that we need to, to lift up, uh, as models, men, but women who, who have, despite risk to their life, have, have trusted the Lord and done what is right. And even in even in this series, uh, you know, a couple episodes ago, we're talking about Rahab at threat from the king does the right thing. Yeah. And so, so we, so we, in this family line, we have, um, you know, so again, I, I do think that, that by, by maybe reinterpreting it in that, in the way some people have, it, it, it takes, it takes away um, many of the lessons that we need to learn from what's happening here. And it can, and y'all sort of alluded to this, it can, in flattening that out, even a term like rape, it can actually then, in some ways, uh, it kind of misses, like, hey, there are people who, who have been actually, as you said, John, two chapters later, who have been violently violated. And that's not the same as what's happened to Bathsheba. And I think we need to be careful when we flatten out terms to do even disrespect to people who have, have, have obviously had something violent happen to them. Um, and so... Again, I know that's a thorny, thorny thing. Um, appreciate you guys at least tackling it to some degree and and giving some thoughts there. So let let's then we've kind of hit on this, but let's ask an explicit question. Um, you know, often when we're talking about David in First and Second Samuel, he's a type of Christ. In this situation, obviously, there's shocking sin that we've hit on. How did you handle that sin, and then how did you handle that connection to Jesus uh, in in this text? I think you just acknowledge it, right? That throughout David is held up as a type of Christ. Ezekiel 34, you know, after this, David will come. Again, talking about Jesus, talking about the Messiah in David terminology. But like every other human king, like he he clearly isn't the Messiah. And this this makes it abundantly clear he's not the Messiah. Though much of his life pictures the Messiah, in this case, it doesn't. And in fact, it's sort of the opposite. He acts in a very un unchristlike way, you know, you know, the, the way he treats women, the way he takes instead of serving, um, the, the way that he, he's, he becomes a liar trying to cover his sin and where Jesus always speaks with the truth. In, in a lot of ways, the, the closest picture to Jesus in this text is Uriah, who actually abstains, um, you know, from, uh, you know, abstains from sexual activity here in a way to like, honor and care for his responsibilities that he's been given. And so I, I think it's just, again, David is the closest we ever had to a human answer and look at how it goes. Uh, mm. Solomon's the same way. Like this is the height of sort of kingly rule and look at how it ends. So even the best examples end up falling so far short of what we need. John, uh, kind of, as you think about this narrative and you start thinking ahead to preaching it, how are you going to connect it to Christ and obviously uh, uh, kind of acknowledging David's shocking failure and sin here? 
Yeah, I would just say he's a, he's a type of Christ, which which means not one to one correspondence. Um, and here, I think you do it through contrast, right? Yeah, and say yeah. it shows he's not the one. He's not he's not the king. Uh, the son of David is going to be greater than David, um, and uh, he needs he needs his son's forgiveness, mm-hmm. and he cries out for it in Psalm fifty one. Um, and so I would just say, yeah, I would, I would do the, I'm going to do the contrast. Jesus lays down his life for his bride. He doesn't use his bride for his own, uh, pleasure. Jesus lays down his life for his brothers. He doesn't take their life. Um, and so that's what, that, that's how we're going to, um, we're going to approach Jesus in, in this text. One, one of the elders in our church pointed out what I thought was an interesting, um, interesting thing in this story. He talks about the actual son of David in this text. And he said, this child had to die for David's sin. So in the story, you have a son of David who dies because of uh, David's sin. And, and even this confidence David has that he'll see him again, you know, so this, this son of his who died because of his son, his sin will one day, um, you know, will one day be raised from the dead because of another one of his sons. And so I think there's an interesting mm. An interesting pick point ahead to his son who dies in his place uh, centuries later. Yeah, that'll preach for sure. Uh, that's good. That's good stuff. <laughs> what uh, final just uh, final question takeaways from this? How do you want people leaving as they hear you preach this sermon? The biggest takeaway. Uh, we'll kind of end there. Well, I'll, I'll just say first, like um, one, I'm just going to be real clear about sexual sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and how, and how, one of the things that, that my youth pastor did when we were younger is trace like David here, you know, with Bathsheba, his sexual sin, Solomon's going to multiply that. And then Rehoboam's going to insert cult prostitution at the temple. And, uh, and so it's like this snowball effect from David to his son, to his grandson, um, just rampant immorality and it all it all goes back it all goes back to this and and um, and so what you do has not only consequences for you but has consequences for your children and the people around you. Um, and then to talk about I will I will bring in Psalm fifty one. How do we when we have messed up uh, big time? That how do we respond? And and you know too many people too many leaders that we know uh, pastors who've been immoral or whatever try to excuse it try to you know. You know David's broken once Nathan confronts him over this and, and needs mercy. And so he, he receives mercy. Um, and then, and then just, you know, um, I, I think also to talk about, I, I would talk about Uriah and just his, his faithfulness and his character, uh, to the Lord. I think there's just some ways that we can, uh, be practical. Yeah, I think it's that. I think it's a warning about your sin. Your sin always finds you out. No matter how powerful you are, no matter how clever you are, your sin um, brings consequences. So a reminder of that. But then just even in our, the biggest mess we've made, the, the grace of God in Jesus Christ is sufficient. And so David made a mess of his life and he made a mess of his kingdom. And yet God still brought the Messiah from his line to redeem him. So there's always hope no matter how, how messy your life gets. As somebody who's named Nathan, I'm disappointed that y'all didn't talk about the prophet a little bit more, who there's nothing bad said about him in the Bible, one of the few characters that we can say that about. So just want you to know I'm a little disappointed. Well, next time I preach it, I'll make sure to end with that. I appreciate that. That would be, that'd be very helpful. 
Well, thank you guys for listening to the Christ Centered and Clear podcast. We hope you have a wonderful Christmas day celebrating the first advent of Jesus Christ and awaiting his second coming. Join us next week as we wrap up the story of Advent by looking at the final woman listed in the genealogy, that being Mary herself. We'll see the grace of God working in a powerful way in the woman who was chosen to bear the Messiah. Thank you for listening to the Christ Center and Clear podcast. If you have questions, topics, or texts that you'd like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at podcast at ChristCenteredAndClear.com. And please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources that will help you see and share Jesus from all of Scripture. Scripture.